Florida Frontiers, the weekly radio magazine of the Florida Historical Society, is made possible in part by the Department of State Division of Historical Resources and the State of Florida. It's also made possible by the Jesse Ball DuPont Fund and by the historic Rossiter House Museum and Gardens in O'Galley, celebrating pioneer history, the natural environment, and women's history. Available for weddings and events at rossiterhousemuseum.org. This is Florida Frontiers, the weekly radio magazine of the Florida Historical Society, on the web at myfloridahistory.org. I'm Ben Broatmarkle, and coming up on the program, Duncan Fletcher was mayor of Jacksonville in the late 1800s and early 1900s and served as a U.S. Senator for 27 years. His wife, Anna Fletcher, was an avid spiritualist. She said the grandfather clock would start in the middle of the night after it had stopped for days of silence. She said that everyone heard creaks and knocks around the house. Nobody was ever injured or anything, but she could swear that there was a lot of activity that had happened in this particular spot. We'll discuss the U.S. District Court, Middle District of Florida. The creation of the Middle District was tied up in the fundamental changes of the 1950s. And we'll talk about the Okahumka Rosenwald School. All that ahead on Florida Frontiers. Spiritualism is a religion that was popular in the late 19th and early 20th centuries, founded on the belief that communication with those who have passed away is possible. A prominent figure in Jacksonville society was a leading proponent of spiritualism. Tim Gilmore is author of the book Channeling Anna Fletcher, a nonfiction novel. So in her own lifetime, Anna Fletcher was predominantly known as the wife of, I hate to start that way, but the wife of uh, Duncan U. Fletcher, uh, who was twice mayor of Jacksonville, and he was a 27-year U.S. senator from Florida. But in her own right, she she had a, a pretty remarkable life. She was one of the leaders of the Women's Club of Jacksonville. And uh, when uh, Senator Fletcher, when Duncan Fletcher became Senator Fletcher, uh, she became the president of something called the Congressional Club in Washington, D.C., which was something like the club for all of the congressmen and senators' wives. But most, most interestingly for what we're talking about today, Um, She was a a proponent of spiritualism for 40-something years. She wrote two books about spiritualism. She championed the cause in Jacksonville and in D.C. She most famously argued against Harry Houdini before a congressional committee when Houdini was on a crusade against spiritualism. Duncan and Anna Fletcher married in March 1881, He was an attorney who served on the Jacksonville City Council. Duncan was mayor of the city from 1893 to 1895 and was elected mayor again after the Great Fire of 1901. He then served as a U.S. Senator for 27 years. You know, it's not clear how Duncan 
Fletcher felt uh, entirely. He always stayed mum on the subject. There were a couple of big newswire stories uh, that featured, you know, full page stories around the country on Anna Fletcher having seances and spiritualist leaders over to uh, the the Fletcher's house in Washington, D.C. And they would say how Senator Fletcher feels about this. We don't know. He's focusing on more. (laughs) One one newspaper article called it more mundane things, which is a kind of a funny way, I think, to refer to whatever was the leading political issue of the time. But, uh, you know, he seems to have been at least supportive We don't have any words from him about uh, what he thought about Anna Fletcher's interests, but we do have some words from Anna Fletcher about what she thought the roles of women regarding their husbands and their husbands' careers were at the time. So that's kind of a convoluted way of saying that if he had had any kind of problem with her espousing and championing such ideas... Uh, she probably would not have done so. Anna Fletcher was a vocal and active proponent of spiritualism throughout her husband's political career and after. Spiritualism became the object of increasing criticism as seances, some not associated with the belief system, were proven to be fake. Tim Gilmore points out that spiritualism provided opportunities for women. Spiritualism was seen as giving kind of a more prominent leadership role to uh, to women than was available in many other places. Uh, spiritualist leaders were, were usually women. And the, the thinking of the time, the particular strengths that one needed to be a successful spiritualist were attributes that were thought of as being more feminine, things like being in touch with one's uh, intuition and uh, things like that. And having, you know, uh, there was a lot of, uh, you know, specific language around sensitivity and things like that. So this was very gendered language at the time that, in fact, gave rise to, to leadership for women within spiritualism. So, you know, Anna Fletcher being an early leader of uh, the women's club movement and then of the congressional club in DC, one of the things that's kind of frustrating is to see her trying to navigate exactly what her role as a woman should be at the time and her role as the wife of this powerful political leader. Um, in 1920, there's a newspaper article that asks her about whether she's a supporter of women getting the right to vote or not. Of course, women got the right to vote in 1920, and she would not actually say, which is really, uh, it's frustrating to read now, 100 years on. And she says that she, she wouldn't say because she had lots of members of the Congressional Club, uh, so these were women, uh, who themselves Uh, were on both sides of the issue, so she didn't want to take a stand. But she also talks a lot about women being powerful in supporting their husbands' careers and things like that, which can be a little frustrating to read in the 21st century. Celebrity escape artist Harry Houdini was not a fan of spiritualism and testified before the United States Congress, encouraging them to investigate spiritualists. Anna Fletcher also testified before Congress, relating her own experience of finding the owner of a lost Stradivarius violin through a communication with her dead father. 
Houdini really did not like spiritualists. Uh, and uh, this is something called the, uh, it's been referred to as the Houdini fortune telling bill that would have banned um, fortune telling and similar activities in the DC area and elsewhere. Uh, it did not pass, but he, he did argue before Congress and she argued against him in front of Congress regarding this bill. Anna Fletcher's uh, father had run um, a business selling musical instruments in Jacksonville. And there was a particular violin, a Stradivarius, that she had, had hung on to for a long period of time. She said before Congress, um, she talked about in 1924 directions leading her to a boy, now a man, who had, quote, traveled eight times around the world, lived in Russia and France, um, he had known the city of Jacksonville had been destroyed entirely by fire. This is the Great Fire of 1901 and supposed his violin had gone this way. So this was a violin that was uh, the family had had from the 1888 yellow fever epidemic. They had hung on to it. And she apparently reunited this Stradivarius, she says, with this, uh, this individual after all these years because dreams uh, she had received uh, messages that directed her to him. And she used that as a piece of personal evidence that she believed in spiritualist kinds of activities. Discussions of spiritualism in Florida always lead to Casadega, the spiritualist community near DeLand, founded in 1875 by George P. Colby. Anna Fletcher reportedly gave lectures in Casadega on several occasions. In 1929, Anna Fletcher wrote the book Death Unveiled, in which she further described her experiences with spirit encounters. Tim Gilmore. She always claimed not to be a medium herself, but she traveled around the country meeting with mediums and people who supposedly had spiritualist powers. Um, one of the things that she claimed was that in the Duncan Fletcher Mansion, as it was referred to, the Fletcher Mansion, which was downtown on Church Street, it's, it's not there anymore. But she said that uh, a number of strange things had happened in, in this house, that somebody had lost their life, not in this house, but in a, a house that had been there before this house. Um, she talked about um, a grandfather clock falling over and pinning someone to the ground. She talked about things moving around and, you know, sounds in the night and things like that. She was um, pretty adamant about it. She said the grandfather clock would start in the middle of the night after, after it had stopped for days of silence. She had said that uh, everyone heard creaks and knocks around the house. Um, nobody was ever injured or anything. But uh, she, she could swear that there was a lot of activity that had happened in this, in this particular spot. Following Duncan Fletcher's death in 1936, Anna Fletcher returned to Jacksonville, where she died of bronchitis in 1941 at the age of 80. She lived a quiet life when she came back to Jacksonville. She had a house built on Riverside Avenue in 1935 and passed away just a few years later, right before Christmas, and died at home with her two daughters um, came and stayed with her. That house is now uh, Hugo's Interiors <laughs> on, on Riverside Avenue. It's not clear whether she entertained any kind of um, spiritualism activity or anything like that at, at her home once she came back to Jacksonville. Um, just lived a, a quiet life there for just a, a few years after uh, Senator Fletcher passed away. 
The Riverside Drive House, where Anna Fletcher died in Jacksonville, is open today as a private business. No communication with Anna Fletcher's spirit has been reported. Tim Gilmore. I'm not sure if this is true or not, but I've been told that the hallway that goes through the middle of the house was designed specifically because of uh, Anna Fletcher, her use of a wheelchair, and it goes from the front all the way to the back through the very middle. I don't know if that's true or not, but you can definitely, uh, you know, you can walk into the room that was her bedroom. Uh, and if you are of a spiritualist mindset or... <laughs> If you, you entertain any of those ideas, you know, this, this is where uh, this champion of spiritualism passed away. Tim Gilmore is author of the book Channeling Anna Fletcher, a nonfiction novel. This is Florida Frontiers, the weekly radio magazine of the Florida Historical Society. I'm Ben Broatmarkle. Visit us anytime online at myfloridahistory.org for lots of free content, including archived editions of this program, our public television series, Florida Frontiers, and other entertaining educational resources. That's myfloridahistory.org. Joining us now is Connie Lester, Associate Professor of History at the University of Central Florida, Director of the Riches Digital Archiving Project, and Editor of the Florida Historical Quarterly. Connie, several Florida historians, especially James Michael Denham, a professor at Florida Southern, focus on the legal history of the state. You have examples of some of that work? Professor Denham was central to one of the most influential special issues published by the Florida Historical Quarterly. The issue was published in 2012 to honor the 50th anniversary of the creation of the U.S. District Court, Middle District of Florida. The Historical Society of the Court planned a celebratory symposium to present papers relating to cases heard by the court, remembrances by presiding judges, and attorneys who had argued before the court. The Society contacted the FHQ about publishing the papers in a special issue. At the time of the event, Denham was writing A History of the Court, which was published by the University Press of Florida in 2015, under the title 50 Years of Justice, A History of the U.S. District Court for the Middle District of Florida. Probably many of our listeners have never considered the creation of a U.S. District Court. Why was one created in 1962? The simple answer is growth. As Denham noted, the creation of the Middle District was tied up in the fundamental changes of the 1950s, and the growth that accompanied expanded tourism, the rise of the space industry, and the population movement to the Sunshine State post-World War II. 
At the time, the existing federal district court, the Southern District Court of Florida, extended from the Georgia border in the north to the Florida Keys, in other words, the entire peninsula. With the population boom, the volume of cases appearing before the court simply became unmanageable. Thus, for the first time since 1928, Congress created a new district court in 1962, the Middle District Court of Florida. It covered the territory from Georgia south to Brevard County and southwest to the southern border of Lee County, a total of 33 counties. As Denham explained, the southern district, now reduced in physical size, included the 12 counties that made up the high-density population centers from the Gold Coast to the Keys. The Middle District Court heard an interesting cast of famous and infamous defendants, as well as important cases that shaped national jurisprudence. Jimmy Hoffa, Manuel Noriega, Ted Bundy, Santo Traficante, and Wesley Snipes were among the defendants appearing before the court. In describing the range of cases heard before the court, attorneys Richard Dellinger and John Phillison noted that they reflect the major events of the times, segregation and integration, prison overcrowding, the collapse of the Skyway Bridge, criminal drug trafficking, and the war on drugs, terrorism, spying, and the evolving disputes associated with intellectual property. Now, this was an unusually large issue of the Florida Historical Quarterly, encompassing more than 250 pages and involving 42 authors. How was the issue organized? Carefully. After an introduction by the Court Historical Society and a brief history of the court by Mike Denham, the 14 featured cases were organized into three groups, integration segregation cases, civil law cases, and criminal law cases. Each group of cases was introduced by a judge of the Middle District Court. Finally, three reflective articles looked at the uses and abuses of federalism, early litigation on jail and prison conditions, and the history of the Middle District Court with the right to a speedy trial as guaranteed by the Sixth Amendment. It was a massive undertaking. But I must say that all attorneys were on time with their submissions and meticulous in their writing, as their profession requires. The precise and quick work by the contributors made completion of the project easier than I could ever have expected. In addition, it had immediate positive results. Not surprisingly, we had many requests from bar associations across the South for copies of the special issue to add to their libraries. What was not expected was the widespread positive response from academics and general readers. They found the special issue accessible, informative, and an important addition to Florida history. How were the cases chosen for inclusion in the special issue? Can you highlight one or two of them? Yes, cases were chosen by the attorneys and judges to highlight legal issues with national consequences and those that reached the U.S. Supreme Court. In Tyne v. Warner Entertainment Company, 2002, surviving family members and one former crew member of the fishing vessel, Andrea Gale, filed a lawsuit against the film company for unauthorized commercial misappropriation and invasion of privacy filming and distribution of the movie The Perfect Storm. The movie, based on a book by Sebastian Younger, told the story of the weather event that caused the deaths of six crew members. 
In her decision on the case, Judge Ann C. Conway ruled against the plaintiffs. By deciding for Warner Entertainment, Judge Conway, quote, recognized that expressive works that depict real persons are entitled to full First Amendment protection, whether the works are fiction or nonfiction or a combination of the two, end quote. In 1991, Judge Howell W. Melton Sr. provided a groundbreaking ruling in Robinson v. Jacksonville. The lawsuit was brought by Lois Robinson, one of the only a handful of female skilled craft workers in the shipyard. Robinson charged the Jacksonville shipyard with creating a hostile work environment by refusing to address demeaning comments about women and preventing the display of pornographic material in the workplace. Judge Melton ruled in favor of the plaintiff, but awarded her only $1 in damages, citing no evidence of actual financial loss. The consequences were swift and groundbreaking. In 1991, Congress amended Title VII to authorize recovery of compensatory and punitive damages for unlawful intentional discrimination, including harassment claims based on a hostile work environment. Attorney Tara R. Price, in her summary of the case for the quarterly, asserted that Robinson was groundbreaking Quote, it held that pornography alone could sufficiently create a hostile work environment in violation of Title VII, and employees could not post pictures of nude women at work by using the First Amendment as a shield and sword to continue harassing behavior. Some fascinating cases, Connie, and there's many more in that issue of the Florida Historical Quarterly. Thanks. You're welcome. Connie Lester is Associate Professor of History at the University of Central Florida, Director of the Riches Digital Archiving Project, and Editor of the Florida Historical Quarterly. This is Florida Frontiers. There are only a few Rosenwald schools left in Florida. One of them is in Okahumka. Holly Baker has more. The Florida Trust for Historic Preservation recently announced 2021's 11 to save list of the most threatened historic properties and resources across Florida. The Okahumka Rosenwald School in Lake County is on the 2021 11 to save list. Completed in 1930, the school was constructed for the children of Okahumka, a black community of mostly citrus workers, watermelon farmers, and turpentine laborers. The Rosenwald Fund, established by philanthropist Julius Rosenwald and African-American educator Booker T. Washington, built more than 5,000 schools for black children across the South between 1913 and 1932. Chip D'Amico is a board member and volunteer fundraising chairman for the Okahumka Community Club which owns the Rosenwald School in Okahumka. 
The Okahumka Community Club is working to raise funds to restore the property to serve as a community center. When I first got involved, the club was talking about tearing this building down. I sat in the audience and wondered what they were talking about because I was new to the area. And after I found out, I decided to go check it out. So I asked permission to check it out. And the next meeting, I remember going back and, and they were starting to continue their, their conversation about, you know, they wanted a nice place to congregate, to, to meet as a community and grow the community together. And I raised my hand and I said, you know, there's nothing wrong with that building. You really shouldn't tear it down. And I, I believe that for you to get a new community center in this community, it, it would be because of this building, because I had done the research on it and learned about Julius Rosenwald and, and learned about the history and what's taking place in this community or in this nation as a whole, the Black Rights Movement and all of that. I think it's very important that this building didn't get torn down. The Okahumka Rosenwald School was one of 120 Rosenwald schools built in Florida. Today, it's among the few surviving structures built by the Rosenwald Fund. Lack of resources, demolition, and neglect threaten many of the remaining Rosenwald schools. Chip D'Amico and other preservation advocates hope that the former school building can be brought back to life as the Okahumka Community Center. Our plans are complete restoration of the old school. We want to use it to honor Julius Rosenwald with photographs, whatever we can get to display about the story of the Rosenwald School. I do have old documents that I went through, not much, but old documents from the school board minutes from back in 1929 and 1930 about the building of it, things like that, to show the history of the school. That's what we want to do with the school building itself. We want to make it back to the original as best we can. We want to add a new community center slash meeting place. We'd rather not have to have everybody congregate and meet in a newly restored historic structure. So we want a place where we can have gatherings and meetings attached to the building on the backside of it. We're hoping we'll be able to use it as an emergency shelter for storms and cold weather when it hits. It would be a good place to have an emergency shelter, so we'd like to equip it as such. In the future, the Okahumka Community Center will include a space to honor civil rights pioneer and attorney Virgil Hawkins, who was born in Okahumka in 1906. Virgil Hawkins, an African-American man, was denied admission to the University of Florida Law School in 1949 due to the color of his skin. After applying to the Florida Supreme Court under the Equal Protection Clause, Hawkins withdrew his application to the University of Florida in exchange for a Florida Supreme Court order desegregating UF's graduate and professional schools, empowering other African Americans to attend the University of Florida. Chip D'Amico. We also want to honor Virgil Hawkins. This Virgil Hawkins was born and raised right here, right behind where the school sits, basically. He attended school on the same site and his parents actually donated a half acre of land to the school when it was under consideration for a Rosenwald property. But we want to honor him and his history and what he did for segregation in the University of Florida. To help the Okahumka Community Club fulfill their mission to restore the Okahumka Rosenwald School and turn it into a community center, visit okahumka.org. To learn more about the Florida Trust for Historic Preservation and the 11 to Save list, go to floridatrust.org. For Florida Frontiers, I'm Holly Baker. 
public history coordinator for the Florida Historical Society, and archivist at the Library of Florida History in Cocoa. You've been listening to Florida Frontiers, the weekly radio magazine of the Florida Historical Society. Please join us right here again next week. Until then, you can find us anytime online at myfloridahistory.org and on Facebook. Production assistance for Florida Frontiers comes from Holly Baker and Connie Lester. The program is edited by John White. Have a great week. I'm Ben Brokemarkle. Frontiers, the weekly radio magazine of the Florida Historical Society, is made possible in part by the Department of State Division of Historical Resources and the State of Florida. It's also made possible by the Jesse Ball DuPont Fund and by the historic Rossiter House Museum and Gardens in O'Galley, celebrating pioneer history, the natural environment, and women's history. Available for weddings and events at rossiterhousemuseum.org.